Okay, ready? Ain't what you know, and it's about a time when you get yourself in we are. I want to know something she's done. I think about everyone you need. I'm holding it, things are moving real now. I have a senior warning you. Hey. The ratio. Okay, though. The ratio. Okay, though. That might be the best question I've ever been asked. You're a phenomenal person. I mean, you legendary. I am a fan of you, my brother. But if you're Jay-Z or somebody else, like Rihanna, like this is my guess on how you get Rihanna to do the Super Bowl, and she's like, no, I'm not doing this because of Kaepernick, da-da-da. And they come to Rihanna, and they're like, well, let me show you all this stuff that we're doing here. And by the way, like, Talk about like bail funds, def- organizations that support defunding the police. See that? Uh, Jay, Jay calls it like, yo, yeah, no, but, this ready? Is, but my point is simply this the NFL can position itself as actually doing some work because they are doing some work and then get some people in if you want to. Now, maybe it's possible that Jay-Z was just like, hey, Riri, we need you to do this. I mean, the obvious guess is she got an album coming out. It's good for you to do this, Riri. Yeah, but she she probably got an album coming out. She probably got a tour coming out. The Kaepernick horse has left the barn. He ain't getting no job. It's not going to happen. It's a question of whether or not you're fighting. But I think with Jay-Z, I don't think the NFL is... Those people in charge of the NFL aren't nearly as smart as we think. Bomani Jones is the host of HBO's Game Theory, a show about sports and comedy. It's fun. It's fast moving. Bomani's been in the game for a long time. He's did a bunch of shows at ESPN. He was on the radio before that. I've known him for a long time. Wasn't always sure that he liked me. So it was actually really gratifying and refreshing to sit and talk with him to talk about that, to talk about just everything we get into sports we get into music we have an amazing argument about music later in the show because the man is interested in everything and he's truly brilliant he's got like three advanced degrees in economics so it was a joy to sit and talk with the man bomani jones on touration I am super grateful and impressed that you're here. And you're like super keep it real, dude. Mm-hmm. Like always been that way when you were in Miami, when radio, whatever. And super. So, so can I keep it? Oh, hu- yeah. hu- I thought you didn't like me. Ah. And that does, and you being here doesn't necessarily prove you don't. But I think if you were like, I don't like dude, you just wouldn't take time away from your show. I mean, a couple of Twitter back and forths probably over a decade but ago. No, you but can nothing only, contentious. Nah, nah, you can't. You, I mean. Even if that were a thing, it ain't nothing to hold on to for, like, an extremely long period of time or anything like that. But, no, especially with part of it, of course, is, like, the television show. But I also enjoy, normally when I'm doing something that I would say, I guess, is, like, a longer-form discussion, I'm the one in charge of it. And that's a lot of work. I I greatly enjoy the opportunity to let somebody else decide where this is going to go. <laughs> somebody else run the yeah, show. Yeah, and then we work from there. <laughs> so Okay. All right. See, because... I taught a class at NYU, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, a story might get whatever. And I, so then I spoke. At the end of the class, I spoke. And at the end of the speech, somebody was like, yo, Bomani was here a little while ago. This is maybe 10 years ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. 
And um, and they're like, yeah, he said something about you in his speech. And I was like, what? Yeah, I don't. I know the speech, but I don't remember like saying anything. It couldn't have been for very long because that is generally uh, not <laughs> right. my steez and that people be trying to start stuff too. Oh, yeah, I, like yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. It is amazing. I always tell people when they say like insert thing here is like high school, and it's like no, everything's like high school because high school is like life. <laughs> Right, so the, the the thing that makes high school high school is that you throw all these people together and none of them has to be there. Yeah. And so all the interpersonal dynamics and everything else comes out, and there's always the, this person, that person, there's always the instigator. And every other dynamic also has all of those people. Like the ecosystems are just basically reproduced. But we like drop when you off. go to work, there's a hierarchy. There's a person, mm-hmm. either the boss or HR, is going right. to say, you can't do that. And, and you want to be there because you want the money. Mm-hmm. You may not like the job, but, like, I need the check. Mm-hmm. School, there's no – there's the principal, but it's not really a hierarchy. Mm-hmm. It's like you can't be mean to that person, yeah. right? And there's no – we're not getting anything out of, it, like, monetarily that's making me want to be – No, the hierarchy in school is really, like, based around whether you can fight. Like, the hierarchy always can yes. get shuffled around just yes. based upon the results of whatever fight happened after school that day. It's very primal. Well, especially for men and young men, a lot of it is the perception of what would happen in a fight. Yes. Maybe I might beat you up, you might beat me up, but but on paper, who do you think would win? And that person's going to, and the potential loser, you might you might be faster yeah. and beat the guy up. You might be more courageous than the taller guy, but but we're not we're not playing it out. No, 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 no. In, in, in the end, there always is like two or three people that just really enjoy fighting. Like that is just a recreational <laughs> activity. Um that 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 guy is out there. By and large, nobody's really trying to get hit in the face. Like to right. test whether right. or not you can actually win this fight involves a big risk, which is leading with your chin. <laughs> And most people ain't really trying to do that. So your career has been fairly extraordinary because most black people will get a shot. Mm -hmm. They'll get a show. It'll do well or won't, whatever. And that's kind of it. We don't usually get to go to different networks and keep making it happen. Mm -hmm. And you, you you had a name before ESPN. Then you had a hot show at ESPN, right? Then you had a show that didn't work out so well. Mm -hmm. But then now you're at HBO. Like how just as a career... Just curator, how are you able to, like, keep moving around and keep moving upward in this way? Well, I think for me, the thing that I've always figured out about this is anytime I have aimed specifically for one thing to happen, that thing has happened and probably not been the best idea, right? Wait, you're talking about you manifested something you wanted and it didn't work? Yeah. So I would say, so we can go back now. I guess it's now over 15 years ago. Um, I decided in the year 2005, I was working as a freelance writer and I was doing a lot of stuff at the ESPN.com's page too. And I was like, I'm giving this a year, but in a year I want to have, I want to be on staff here. And a year later, it's actually a very interesting story. So a year later, I was in this awkward place that you can wind up in as a freelancer, and many of us who are freelance know this life, which is you get the workload of a staffer and the benefits of a freelancer, which is none, right? And you're a permalancer. Yes, yes. Like, it was was feeling like that. (laughs) And see, the permalancer life don't necessarily feel so bad in the months where you get, like, the check is fat. Yeah. Right, you don't think about it that way. You eat what you kill, and you just and you killed this month. Okay, cool. 
Um, but I recognized that that was happening, and I didn't like it, but I got invited to come to some, like, a summit for the whole staff, which for me felt like a big deal because I'd never been invited to anything like that. But I remember at some point, some guy told a joke that it was like farting church. It just ain't go over. But he had just gotten a contract, and somebody joked and was like, hey, once you get a contract, this is what happens. And then the guy says, but hey, Bomani wishes we were giving him shit like that. And I was just in there. In I'm, front of everybody? In front of everybody. And keep on, I'm 25. Whoa. And so I'm there, and I'm, I don't know what to do. Like, I just go outside and walk around because I'm a bit furious. And then the Monday after, I called the guy, and I said, hey, man, I got to tell you. That didn't land right with me. Like, it's just, you know I'm trying to do this. I've been out here grinding. And he said, you know what? You're right, and let's make a contract happen. And so he made a, a boss, a yes. leader said that. Yes. And then you were able to leverage that. Yeah, well, I don't. But you were genuine. He wasn't a move. Yeah, like, yeah, you, no, you, it was, you yeah. hurt my feelings. Yeah, it was just like, hey, man, that wasn't. You embarrassed yeah, me. Yeah, that wasn't necessary. And if the thing was it, was, it was not, it was a little less than embarrassing just because all the people in the room thought I should have had a contract, too. Like, there were people in there who didn't, who were shocked that I didn't. But we got the contract, worked for a year, and it did not. There's a number of reasons why it didn't work. If you were to ask me, I had immediate, an immediate superior who was just not on board with what I was doing. Okay. And if you got a one-year contract and your boss ain't with it, then things do? are going to get weird. And so, But I was so concerned with getting that one job, right? And I made the decision after that. It was just kind of like, what you just need to do is be ready, right? Like, there's a million things to do in this game. I've never gone from one job to another where the two jobs were what I would call similar. And so you bounce around, you do this stuff, but the key for me has always been like, all right, so if something comes up, be ready for it. So I did radio locally. Because we get calls for auditions mm -hmm. all the time. These people are starting up something. These people are starting to talk to them, talk to them. Yeah. So most of them go nowhere, but you're like just – just be ready. Yeah, just be ready. Something's going to come. So, like, for me, after the the writing thing didn't work out, um, local radio station, the guy who worked there, I remember I called him basically to whine and complain about the fact, you know, what had just happened with this other job. And his response was, so that means you can do radio now. And then, boom, then I'm doing weekends. For and him. then Yeah, for, for the local radio station. And then for that summer, I did afternoon drive. And then after that, they picked me up to do a midday show. And then a year and a half after that, the station went out of business. And then I get a call from this outfit in Canada who had a serious state, a station on Sirius XM. And I wind up on that. And then that operation goes out of business. I wind up getting on with SB Nation. And then, so like doing a local radio show is much different than doing a satellite show, which is much different than my next job, which was doing YouTube videos. And then that contract ran out and I wasn't going to come back. And I mean, like it was a very amicable departure. Like there was nothing wrong with it. But all these sports networks had started like NBC sports, CBS sports, FS one, they had all gotten going. And I had, I was in a very unique position because I had been doing around the horn for two or three years by then. So I had ESPN visibility, but didn't have an ESPN contract. Mm. And so for those people that are trying to get it, you know, get it going. And I'm like 32 at the time. Like, so I, I got, I had calls from basically all of them. I don't think CBS Sports really cared, but I had a meeting with them. But I, you know, I had something from the NBC world. I had something from Everybody Fox. Everybody like, on your door. Yeah, all these people coming, and then ESPN was actually not interested at the time because they said I didn't. They didn't have the inventory for it. And then uh, Dan Levitard jumped up and was like, "Oh, I know a place. Like right here, my show. Let's do it." 
and he was cool enough with the president of the company at the time. So, boom, that happened. And so I did that for four years. That's the longest I've ever worked any job. And that was an unmitigated and unquestionable success. Like, my time on Around the Horn was very successful. Yo, I think the same thing that the longest I've had, like, a broadcast gig was four years. Yeah. And I'm like, if I could, like, keep it longer and create a little more stability, yeah. <laughs> things would be better. Yeah, and I doubt I'll have another one. I mean, four years is a long time in that space. Like, it this is. podcast I do for ESPN, I guess I've been doing that now for five, so I guess that's longer than the four years. But that was the longest I'd had a gig, and I signed a four-year contract. My plan was, after those four years, I will have established myself to get a vehicle that would be more my own. And so we did High Noon and... With Pablo. Yeah, I did that with Pablo. And I guess I could say it was more my own, but what I didn't recognize in that time is what I needed was something to be mine. And that was not. That wasn't the way that Eric wanted to build that show. That wasn't going to be it. Um, The show got canceled, which I don't necessarily think was a bad decision. Like... If they had wanted to keep it, I don't think that would have been a bad decision either. But we weren't in a place where I could just be like, oh, okay. You know, like you you guys, it was not undeniable, right? It wasn't an irrefutable situation. But when that happened, COVID had come, man. Like the whole world was shut down. Because I remember I was out one day and I'm walking. I think I was with my brother. I may have been by myself. But either way, I'm out. I'm walking. And I think Google has shut down the offices. Uh-huh. It was like one of those major tea leaves that hit. Uh-huh. And I remember I called my agent and I was like, hey, man, whatever their last offer was, take it. <laughs> right? Like the show had already been canceled. This, ain't, this wasn't no time to play. Right? Whatever their last offer was, we're going to take it. And so there was the, a year between High Noon being canceled and me getting the call about what was to become Game Theory. And I knew what was going on at that time because I'd been in this place before. And what you do in that time is you grind. You find other things to do because you just need to keep doing things. So I would pop up on a few more ESPN shows. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates was a guest editor for an issue of Vanity Fair. I wrote something for them. I did an interview with Adam Silver for GQ. Like I was just... I needed to keep finding things that I would find challenging. I was doing my podcast. We figured out how to rework that around the fact that there were no sports. So you're able to write podcast, radio, yeah. TV, host, mm-hmm. and guest. Yeah. So when times is lean, I could go over here and do this. Yeah. You know, if a big opportunity comes in, I'm ready to go do that. Yeah. I can always buy some time, right? Yeah. And so then I got the call, I want to say it was March of 2021, about what became Game Theory. How, how did Game Theory come about? Because it was originally for somebody else. It was originally for somebody else. And you jumped in. Yes. And it was for somebody else. I don't know if I have the liberty to say who it was, but I would say, we might seem the same, but we are very different. Um, a black person. Yeah, it was a black person. And so um, they were working on the show with this other person, and something happened, and that didn't work out. Do you, know, do you know what happened? Oh, I know what happened. Tell me. Oh, the dude, he ghosted. <laughs> what do you mean he ghosted? You were doing a television show. It's not a date. How, what do you mean you ghosted? You got to, you're doing a television show. You got a contract. People are, you got to show up. I mean, they were working on a pilot. They hadn't gotten to the television show part. But yeah, all of a sudden, never heard from Buddy. No more. <laughs> Did the person die? Like, <laughs> No, no, no. They just never heard from Buddy. I saw him in something not too long ago. Like, he's still out here. I never heard of ghosting a TV show. I never heard of anything like that either. But that was, that was what so, it was. So he left. So he left. And so... I so they're knew, panicking. Yeah, I knew they were serious. When I got a call from my agent on Friday, 
at something like, it must have been February, it was something like 5 o'clock Eastern time. <laughs> My agent is very orthodox and lives in California. Okay. So the fact that he called me, I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the phone, I'm looking at the clock, and I'm like, whoa, this must be an emergency because he, he's diligent. Right. And so I'm like, hey, what's going on? He's like, you see the email? Check the email. Deal with it. You know, I got to get off the, the call to check the email. Yes, like. yes, yes. I got to get off this modern technology, right? He needed to go, like, right. get his Jew on. The observant. So, right. right. So he hung it up. And I got the email, and they sent me a deck for the show. And it was a sports Did, did you audition? No, no. They just called me. It's just, you can have it if you want it. Not, not that quite. They were making calls to people, right? Okay. But they called me. And I remember I looked at the deck. And it was for like a sports comedy hybrid sort of thing. And I lit up because for 15 years, this is the kind of show that I had wanted to do. I like, I was just like, this would be like, if I get a show on HBO, like, dealing with sports in a deeper way, but also throwing in some of these other elements, this is what I want to do. But I looked at the deck and I wouldn't say I saw problems, but I didn't see a fit. And so I knew they were serious because my agent made that call at that time. And I hit them and was like, hey, can we get a time set? And they're like, how about Monday? Right, and I've been working. Yeah, I've been working this long enough. Don't nobody turn around a call like this next business day right, right, unless right. something is for real. Right. And so I got on the call, and I was honest with them. I was not trying to get this because it didn't make sense to get it if it wasn't going to work. So I said, "Look, I'm gonna be honest with you. This deck does not fit me. It doesn't work uh, for me. This is a deck that was written with a comedian in mind, and I'm not a comedian. Like I recognize that I I'm not a funny. I could be I'm funny, but I'm not a comedian. That's a profession. That's a job. I respect the people who do that." I ain't built like that. I'm not a comedian. But I see the show that you are trying to make. And not only am I perfect for the show that you are trying to make, I think I am the only person that you're going to find you who said can that do the show. In yeah. a meeting? I'm yeah. the only person who can do this job. Yeah, and I meant that. But the reason was, and I think when, when I say the reason, it doesn't <laughs> sound nearly as crazy. You need somebody that the audience takes seriously sure. about sports, sure. right? So you can't just plug in a comedian Tell some jokes, ha, ha, ha. People take sports too seriously. Right, Whether right. you think it's serious or not is right. a completely different discussion, right? Like, you couldn't do a show about music with somebody who don't know about music. Right, it's right. not going to work. People take this too seriously. I was like, so you need, you need somebody who has that but can also carry some of the performance elements that are going to be necessary to serve some of the ambitions of humor and everything else that you have on the show. And I was like, it is possible that you can find somebody who can go do this. But I don't think you're going to find that another is a person. Hell of a thing to say in a meeting. I am the only person who could do this show the way you want to do it. Mm -hmm. Like that that's 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 dope. Yeah, but I also feel like this. As you hear me say that, name the other person. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like it, for it, for me, that wasn't a flex. That was a legitimate. I'm looking at the Venn diagram here. I'm looking at the overlap. There's only and five just, other people in the world you might consider. Yeah, I'd say the overlap's as skinny as me, right? Like you could find somebody that's funny <laughs> that can do that and knows some things about sports, but you're going to need to get like next level exploration to be able to do that. And so I sold them on that, and it turned out that Adam McKay, who's attached to the project, had been interested in me doing the show wow. also. Um, he said he told me that years ago that he had considered something for me, but I was very much so locked into my contract. And so that wasn't an option. And so once it was there, it was like, boom. So now we got to do a pilot. And I don't know nothing about doing pilots. I was about to quit my job to go do this pilot because I thought that's how it worked. <laughs> like, I mean, I thought I thought my job wanted to fire me anyway. 
Um, but I was ready to quit my job to do the pilot. I just totally misunderstood how it worked. And so we're going to do the pilot, but this is one of the funnier parts of the story. I had already agreed to do uh, Back on the Record with Bob Costas, where I was a contributor on his show. And they're like, well, tell us about this guy, Bomani. And they're like, oh, yeah, we had some meetings with him about other stuff. And they're like, oh, yeah, he's so smart. You know, he's got something to say. You know, all the stuff that people, like, wind up saying about me. So now you start by telling these the same people that you just told how smart and deep I was. Now these other people are trying to come in here and say he's going to host your funny man show. Mm. Right? Now imagine you trying to reconcile that mm. if you're HBO. And they weren't sold. And I was fine with that. Like, one thing I have a problem with in this world is all these people who get mad when somebody doubts them. Like, who the fuck are you? Like, what, nobody, ever, nobody ever got no doubt about you? <laughs> right? You over here doubting yourself every 15 minutes, but nobody else is supposed to have a doubt about you? No, it was perfectly fair. For them to raise that question. I didn't have a resume. Now, if they had like been listening to my radio shows and listening to my podcast, there's some things they might have known that would have given them an indication that this is something I could do. But they ain't got that kind of time. So they doubted. Fair. We put the show together. Now, keep in mind, again, they called me in March. We did this pilot at the end of June. So a lot of this was already in the works. Like sure. a lot of the groundwork, a lot of the content they were going for. Sure. was. And I don't know anything about this kind of television. Right, I know how to do television at ESPN. What you think about this, Bomani? And I can get up here and I can rattle that off. I don't know about putting together a pilot. I don't know what the parts are. We got writers. I've never had a, nobody's ever written a word for me ever to say. Right, like I've written my whole all my bars the whole time. How do we get all this figured out? Like how do we do this? And so I didn't know anything about it. So I was a passenger in a lot of ways. And we went and we shot the pilot and we shot it at I think the place is called Metropolis. The the stu- the one hundred six the original one hundred six in Park Studio nice, nice. where they shot a lot of the Chappelle Show stuff and where I am certain the furniture I definitely sat on a couch that Dave Chappelle sat on because there ain't no way they don't moved anything out of that place <laughs> since two thousand five so we go to shoot it and at the time I lived on one sixteenth and Lennox and so I remember I walked in that morning the sun was shining like I was just really like yo we about to go make some television right and I did the pilot and the HBO executives were there and. All their skepticism about me went out the window that day. They were just very thoroughly impressed. You feel the pressure? Nah. I had nothing to lose. Your, ex- your HBO executives are there. Whether or not you get an HBO show is on the line. Yeah, but if I don't get an HBO show, I would just go back to my high-paying job. <laughs> like, worst-case scenario on not getting this show was being who I was the day before, which I'm generally pretty good with. And so I went in. I did the show. We wrapped two hours early, which is something that doesn't happen on a pilot because they use every minute just because they can. We wrapped two minutes early because we were just knocking that stuff out to park um, and getting it done. And then they picked up the show. You know, and then then it was like, okay, so now we got to come up with the show. (laughs) I mean, it's different. It's different because ESPN fame is a lot. Right, like before you did ESPN, people were like, "Yo," mm-hmm. like you do ESPN, and people were like, "Yo, Bo," you walked down the street, and yeah. People were like, "Yo," but when you do HBO, that's a different level of fame. Well, it's different depending on the room you're in, right? So this is the thing about ESPN that I have to explain to people, and what's really, really important about working there and the value that you get from it. Because one thing about ESPN, love them to death. They like to pay you partially with the number on the right side of the check but also with the logo on the top left corner, (laughs) right? And the argument is that they are offering you this platform and the exposure that comes from ESPN. They're not entirely wrong, right? 
And I say that because what I am is really, really dude famous. Men sure. know who I am, and men in all kinds of walks of life sure. know who you are when you're on ESPN, especially when you're on every day. Yeah. You become a part of people's lives. Like yeah, at yeah. this point, there's people who grew up with me sure. because I'm on ESPN all the time. So what happens with HBO, though, is some fancier people mm-hmm. know who you are now. And it's the simple idea that you have a show on HBO because they know how few of those they give out. Yep. They know how rare it is, especially this type of show. Yep. Like this is about sports, but this is like a late night show. Yep. My peers are Bill Maher, John Oliver at HBO. Like those, those are the people who exist in the same space that I exist Maybe in there. Brian Gumbel. Right. But even that legend. show, but that show doesn't air weekly when it's on. Right. Right. right you know right, what right. I mean? Like I did the show with Bob Costas. It's a different kind of show. Like I'm, they're putting me in a position where there's a credibility that is conferred upon you by being in that space. And so, yeah, HBO gets people to, Oh, perk up. Like it's interesting when I go to ESPN for stuff, people like, it's almost like when you come back from college, yeah. Right, right. You go like, oh man, I see you, big dog. I see you made it. Yep. You know, it's that kind of Hell stuff. Yeah. So yeah, no, like, because the fame part for me, fame is as valuable as the next job that you can wind up getting off of what the thing is that you. Well, do. somebody told me, uh, Tina Brown's late husband told me, if you have to introduce yourself to people in a room, you don't have any power. Mm-hmm. And you know, yeah, when I can walk in a room and people already know who I am, yeah. And so the conversation starts. You know, at level six, because mm-hmm. we already know who you are and whether we like you or not, whatever, right. whatever. That's much more interesting than like I have to introduce myself and tell you. And yeah. you don't have to tell no. your next employer who you are. No, I don't. And see, that's the thing about ESPN is here's what ESPN does for you. Because ESPN helped, for example, give me the exposure with Adam McKay. That yeah. was important to right. get in this show. What you can become with ESPN is famous to famous people because famous people spend a lot of time at home watching television, right? Musicians spend a lot of time in the studio with the channel turned to ESPN. Like, I don't have super spectacular. I hung out with, like, the biggest star in the world. Like, I don't have a hangout with Michael B. Jordan story. Right. But when I rode the elevator with Chadwick Boseman, I didn't have to say who I was. Right, right, right. right. I can be that person in rooms with people who don't have to say who they are. Right. Like Magic Johnson coming up. Granted, Magic Johnson's a basketball player, but still, this is also why Magic Johnson is Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson in there rattling off my resume to me. Do you think at any point in my life I ever thought that Magic Johnson was going to be rattling off my resume to me? We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door Thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy. And we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy. And I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer. Because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting 
is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct, and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, part of your resume that I didn't know about before I started researching for this, you have two-plus economics advanced degrees. Yeah. Do you consider it three or is it 2.75? Because you were going for the third one and you didn't get the final hurdle, yeah. but but you did all the fucking work. Yeah, the, the the masters that didn't the, the masters that was supposed to be a PhD, but they give you a master's as a parting gift. I still take it because them two years was hard so, as hell. So you have three I have a bachelor's in economics, I have a master's in politics, economics, and business, which is kind of a highfalutin MBA of sorts, and then a master's in economics. Yeah, like I say, the, the 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 last one was just a parting gift. So so let's so let's. I wanted to try to combine these two and see where your head is at because when we talk about basketball, we talk a lot about super teams and mm-hmm. sports media doesn't talk about uh, the salary cap that much, right? Mm-hmm. But like, it's a critical part of being a GM. But then if you look at baseball; they don't have a salary cap, right? One team does not buy the World Series. The Yankees and Dodgers spend a lot of money. Don't get to the World Series every... They don't get to the World Series a lot. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a lot of just... I'm not even sure where the question is, but just it, I just think about the economics of running a team. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessary to have a salary cap to create parity. The NBA also has haves and have-nots right. that go through almost generations. The Lakers, have, except for this year, Lakers have been good for many, many years. The Lakers, the outside... The have been terrible for many, yeah. many years. Yeah, outside of the last 10 years, the Lakers were... They were good for 50 straight years. Yeah. Like, literally 50 straight years. I want to say in their first 52 years in Los Angeles, they missed the playoffs four times. Yeah. Like, they were nuts on this. Now, the thing about the economics of it is... People pay attention to the salary cap as it relates to their ability to enjoy the games themselves, right? There are hockey has a salary cap that I don't understand. Not because it's too complex. I've just never really looked into exactly how it works. <laughs> Although I do remember what they did do with that salary cap was they made your cap number the average value of your salary. And so what you saw was this rise in eighteen year contracts. But the last 10 years, you pay like a dollar, 
right? So they could throw the numbers up. Uh, oh. Hockey's salary cap and the whole thing is also very interesting because it depends very greatly on the exchange rate between the U.S. and Canadian dollars. <laughs> that, that is that is one of the more fun things about that game. You that remind I'm, me of, of OBJ taking yeah, his yeah, deal taking that in Bitcoin, Bitcoin which turns out to be really, really was, dumb. Yeah, that, yeah. It's almost like you. It's almost like if somebody's offering you money, you should take money, <laughs> right? Um, but I think the cap. I think it's. I think this is what I think when it comes to most things that involve math generally. We are a society that fears math, right? We are a society sure. that fears numbers. You hear all kinds of people like, oh, my God, I'm so terrible at math. You've never heard anybody say, you know, I'm really bad at English. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you don't like math is the only one you hear people say that about. And so when we present ideas, I think, in sports, we tr- for perfectly understandable reasons, you're giving people things that they can actually understand and consume. And it's in part they don't think the audience can consume the numbers, but also most people aren't good at communicating the numbers and the concepts across the board, right? Okay. But sports fans, if you care about basketball, it is amazing the level of minutia that they can have in understanding that rickety salary cap that they have in the NBA, which is really not intended to be a cap because they came up with the cap and then realized hey, this is actually going to do too good a job of breaking up teams, and teams won't be able to keep their own players. Oh, we have the Larry Bird rule, which says you can sign over the cap in order to sign your own players. Wow, suddenly your cap isn't really a cap, is it? Right. Okay, well, damn, now we got this other thing, and these other guys, oh, how are teams going to be able to sign other players if the cap is already here? Well, we come up with this exception. We come up with that exception. So I can meet dudes on the street that know what the biennial exception is. They know the middle-level <laughs> exception. They know the trade exceptions. They know everything else, all of these things. But if I had to get them, like, if you remember the scene in The Wire in season one where Wallace is trying to explain schoolwork to one of the kids in the house and they don't get it, and then he just rattles it off like it's the count on the corner uh-huh. and gets uh-huh. it all immediately. He's uh-huh. like, so how can you not understand the book problem? He's like, yo, you messed up the count, get you fucked up, right? <laughs> like, that's where people are. They can get these things, but I do think that it's not as interesting as talking about the games themselves, and that's where people would typically like to stay. Is football too dangerous to be played at the high school and college level and when i say college let's leave out the secs and the d1s these are those are people who are dead serious and they're trying to make the pros and they have a shot at it outside of those what 40 or 50 top schools Mm -hmm. is it is it too much to be having football be so widespread throughout america right so let's take it in steps right I have really, really come around to the idea that at the very least, there's no reason to play tackle football if you're younger than 14 years old. So, like, before high school. Like, when you really think of the absurdity of children running around like bobbleheads with all these pads on, you know, playing those games, there was some somebody did a reality show once about these kids in Texas. And I'm from Texas, so I've seen this with my own eyes. These kids in Texas playing football. And you got kids out there with concussions. You got kids out there, like, fully laid out. Like, I remember this. When I was, I think I was eight years old, and we were elementary school, and we were playing football for, um, no, I was seven years old. We were playing football for uh, PE, right? And that was our first year in Texas. And I remember we huddled, and somebody came in the huddle and said, we're going to run a right sweep. I had no idea what a right sweep was. And as I look back on it some 35 years later, how in the world are you children able to call a sweep <laughs> with the understanding that somebody actually knows how to do this? Like, that's not really a simple play. That was what they were going to do. They were so indoctrinated into football at that point 
that they knew to run a sweep in I mean, third grade. I mean, even at 15, 16, 17, I'm wondering if like 95% of the potential football players should not be playing at all. No, no, no. I mean, should is that Harvard a, be offering football? Like, I mean, no. Like, like if you want to play football, go to a real football school. Otherwise, like, why are we engaging in yeah, this? Yeah, I mean, it's not a great idea for the adults to play either, right? Like, when people ask, is football too dangerous to play? I mean, too dangerous for me to play, right? And so I think the question comes down to whether or not whose decision is that to make? And obviously, the money's too big in it now for anybody to be like, oh, no, we're putting our feet down, putting the foot down, and we're shutting down. That ain't going to happen. But, no, I mean, if it's too dangerous for you yourself to play, it's probably too dangerous for somebody else to play. Yeah. That's like that's that's I mean, the way that I look at it. But I think, I think we're going to need to have a real conversation, though, about, at the very least, prior to high school. What's I, the point? 99% of the guys have, have, have CTE. Well, CTE, we got to be careful how we use that term, though. Because you can't diagnose it until people are dead, and so there's. But a, they didn't get it when they died, right? But there's a thing. But there's a there's a confirmation bias thing at play where they're looking at CTE for people that they think have CTE. Okay. okay. So like ninety nine percent of people you think have CTE, they might have all kinds of other stuff, right? But CTE is becoming like this broad blanket term. Like football players really bristle at that idea because they're like, you're only checking out the people who exhibit the symptoms and then okay. saying that the rest of us wind up having it. That being said, they still banging their head all around. Like, you think about this with football. You take away the ball, right? And just everything else is going as it does, but there's no ball. What in the world are we doing? Right, right, right. When you right, throw a right. ball there, it's like, oh, suddenly we got purpose, <laughs> right? Like, like that's, that, that's how football works. That's the whole concept of it. So, no, it's crazy town. It's just crazy town that, A, people enjoy watching, and, B, I think a very important part, the men who play it find purpose in it. And I think sure. that we are at a point, particularly in society, for a lot of men where they struggle to find purpose. And Isn't th that true of any sport you dedicate yourself to? Yes, but I think this one is a little different than, say, basketball or baseball because it is so part and parcel with traditional notions of masculinity. Absolutely. Right? And so it is, it's not just affirming purpose. It is affirming manhood for mm. those people. Now, there's a longer discussion to be had about, you know, all the parts of that. But when you assign it to people, like I was talking to somebody about um, why it is that people in the Appalachian Mountains still want coal mines. And you're like, yo, Coal is over. All this other stuff is the future. You better go down to this call center and get you a job. But there's no purpose in working in the call center. They believe that for them, there was a purpose and a fulfillment mm. for working in those mines, right? Working that hard day and getting off and everything else. There's a purpose to it. And I think that for football, when you really look at who the most fervent defenders of football are, they are the most fervent defenders of a traditional, somewhat toxic idea of what it is to be a man. Sure. I mean, I think the rise of football really dovetails with a sense that war is basically over. We're not sending all men to war. We need another way to to suss who are the courageous, strong young men in our yes. society and to teach them those things. So we have football for that. Yes. But we as a society are moving away from that notion. Yes. And then hopefully there's, there's the other the bidirectionality of that kind of military complex where uh, what's my man's name that was down there uh, during Katrina? Honoré. Uh, Russell Honoré, yes, yeah. yes. And I've seen him on TV. He's like, the reason we advertise so tough for the military during football is that is where we are going to find the next great warrior. 
mm. right, is watching football. Like that's 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 where they're going to find the next guy to go out there. Now, granted, our notion of war don't really seem to be so warrior based anymore, as much as press a button, look at a bomb. But that's you know, but that's the direction that it goes, and it all ties into what what it is to be a man in this society, according to a very traditional rubric. I want to jump around to a bunch of sports topics. Yeah. You think Babe Ruth was black, and does it matter? It does matter, and. I don't know if Babe Ruth was black, but I will say this. If you look at a picture of, say, um, what's my man's name? Walter White. Old yes, school yes, NAACP. NAACP, yes, yes. So whoever's listening to this, go pull up a picture. If that man is black, <laughs> how is Babe Ruth not? And they are contemporaries. Like, we have to remember, who we looked at and said was black was much different then than it is now. You drive Jadis, you drive, I'll call these cats like him, the Opelousas All-Stars. You drive Babe Ruth off in Opelousas, Louisiana. He has to explain white if white is what he is going to explain. Okay. And it does matter. If the greatest baseball player of all time in a time, and, and let's be clear about this. I want to stop and make this point. Every argument that you make about Babe Ruth not playing against black players and everything else totally makes sense. Right. The greatest baseball player of all time is Babe Ruth. He was just that much better than everybody else was at the time that it would definitely translate over, unless you're operating under the assumption that black people are naturally more that, athletic. That, I mean, that notion that Babe, which is widespread, that Babe's the greatest player, that to me is part of MLB's problem, that the greatest player played in the fucking 20s? Yeah. And he's greater than Willie Mays, yeah. Ken Griffey, uh-huh. Barry Bonds, so any, I mean, like, we talk about. Yeah, Barry Bonds is number two, that, just to be clear. I mean, like, you and I might talk about, hey, kids, what about Bill Russell and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar? Like, yeah. can they compete with the Jordan, Kobe, LeBron argument? Yeah. Well, and they'd be like, well, I never saw them. Babe Ruth. Yeah, but I mean. Your grandfather didn't see him. Yeah, he didn't. But if he had, he also would have seen what might have been the best pitcher in the league, Gentle along with page. being the best home run hitter in the league. Like, I mean, there's there's arguments all over there, but. The gap between Babe Ruth and his contemporaries is just simply wider than it has been for anybody. It doesn't help Major League Baseball. You're correct that if your greatest player was way back when. Almost 100 years ago. Yeah, but it does. They were trying so hard to keep black people out and from playing that game. And if you look right there, nope, 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 nope. The black dude was actually standing. It would, if they had found out in that time that Babe Ruth was black. Can you imagine the danger well, that Ty, Babe Ruth would have been Cobb under? said some things that uh-huh. made it seem like he knew I mean, that he was black. I mean, the, the nickname by, behind his back and in front of him when they wanted to was nigger lips. I mean, hey, look, man, one thing about white people. White people, white people know if you're not white. Like, you weren't about to fool them. They're like, hey, 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 wait a minute. Something don't feel right, you know? Hey, if, if Babe Ruth was white, he was certainly not allowing anyone to call him that name. no. <laughs> no, that's not exactly. I mean, if he's black and he's trying to pass, yeah, he can't say anything. But he got to be chill. Yeah, no, like, but they make a big deal out of it. Yeah, no, but that, I mean, there's. I, I, I'm surprised that nobody has really, really deeply looked into this because you even like see his daughter, and yeah, I could see where you would be coming from. And black is such a, it's such an amorphous notion. Sure, right. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> that, that I can't discount it. But okay, so the intergenerational argument we love to do because it's fun it tennis is an interesting milieu for that right because people want to talk about the big three now let's, let's talk about men right serena mm-hmm. is amazing 
that's a, that's a different conversation, right? We have Nadal, Federer, Djokovic. We mm-hmm. can toss them up any way you want. I think Djokovic is ahead of the pack at this point, but like, folks want to say, smart folks want to be like, what about Rod Laver? <laughs> he won two Grand Slams. <laughs> yeah, you know, and he would have won more if they didn't do the whole amateur professional thing. Mm-hmm. And I met Rod Laver. He's tiny. Mm-hmm. If you pick Rod Laver up and and it, and, and put him in 1990, he he can't get he can't get out of the first round. Yeah, and you're talking about a world where, let's say, 25 percent of the world was playing paying attention to tennis. Right now, we could get great players from almost any country in the world. The guys are huge; they're mm-hmm. way faster. So I'm like, how does that translate? And Babe, if you picked Babe up and you put him now. Does he even make a team? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's still... He can't hit modern pitching. And he can't throw one past well, a modern well, hitter. Well, the question is this. Would he hit 714 home runs Fuck against no. modern pitching? No, probably. But he would also, despite all the legends, probably still then be lifting the same weights as these dudes. The dude was fat. He could barely Well, he run. was not... No, here's the thing. He wasn't fat until late. If you look at younger Babe Ruth, it was actually... Like, he was an athlete. Like, it, it starts, Babe Ruth stole home plate like six, seven times or something like that in the course of his career. Uh, the so ten- I feel like if you put Jim Brown in modern football, he's good. Yeah, because he, because he is interesting. You put Kareem yeah. or Bill Russell in modern basketball, yeah. they're good. Yeah, yeah, they're good. But let me ask you this about Jim Brown, and this is the point that people don't like to make about him. He was playing at a time where the NFL teams had a cap of 10 black players per team because it was never going to be 11, right? Like, <laughs> So how crazy. like how how is he as dominant in this time? Now tennis becomes a much more interesting discussion because of the change in equipment. Like yeah. it is such a different game now at this point where it's fair to ask if some of these dominant power players could play back then because the impact of their power would be lessened by going to the wooden rackets. But if you're and everything six, else. two six three. And you can run real fast. Yeah, but but the but the key is change of direction. And I and Rod Labor might be able to run your ass around <laughs> back and forth. And then what do you wind up doing? You know, like basketball becomes an interesting place to look at this because I'm gonna start with soccer, get back to basketball. But something that people in Europe say is a mistake with the way that America handles soccer is that we are far too fascinated with athleticism. And so we're always looking for the best athlete and missing out on white what might be the best player. So if my man Jokic is from the United States, how long does it take people to recognize what he can do and put it into action, right? Especially with all the race stuff that comes with basketball. But you, instead of locking into what he can do, you get fixated on what it is that you can't do. And so in this discussion, as we talk about it with some of these guys, like Willie Mays is 5'11", 190 pounds or something like that, right? He would look small playing with the players who are here right now. But if you lock in on what he can do, he probably still can do those things. And I think Babe Ruth is probably a similar case. Mm, interesting. I know when we talk about tennis, I think the biggest thing we need is a union. The players don't have a union. It's insane. If you're not in the top 100, you're basically paying to be out there mm-hmm. and you may go $100,000 into the red. Maybe yeah. even a little bit more. And Golf, if you're same like thing. 300, 400 like you, you lose all the time, right? You got to pay to be out there. A lot of people are like, I can make it for a year or two, and then I got to stop. So where are we developing? the? Ne- Does Djokovic need three mil to win the Aussie, <laughs> right? If you win it, you get three. If you lose in the first round, you get like 100. That's prob- that, is the, that makes your year. Mm-hmm. You can make- but like if we gave a little bit more to the folks at the bottom, 
that not even at the bottom, just like they're in the mid because the rankings go to a thousand. Right. It, it give just people who are around a hundred, hundred twenty. Yeah, I think and the, give him a little bit less at the top. But I think the problem at the bottom is less about how much they're getting than how expensive it is to become a player that's good enough to lose in the first round of the Australian Open. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean. Like you have to the the trainers, the coaches, the travel. You got to fly these people out. Like you're basically like a rapper going on tour. You know, <laughs> like, like I mean, it's 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 not terribly different. Well, if you're not in the top twenty, you probably are not traveling with a coach. Maybe not everywhere, right? But if you want to go just to Australia, you probably want your coach to be there, right? But if you're not top twenty, you probably don't ha- you don't have that relationship. You don't have that kind of money, right? Fair, but I said, but you still got to pay the coach, right? Like their coach may not be traveling, but their coach is still your coach, right? Like, but there are all all these expenses that go into what it takes to now be a professional athlete. It's hard to do it if you're not at the top level, and they all need a union. But let me tell you, who ain't joining that union? Serena Williams, Naomi Osaka, all the people who actually get the money. So how do you keep this union going in that way? It's the, like, it was the funniest thing about the live golf situation was that after you got past the, yo, you're doing business with the Saudis, and then you started listening to the complaints that the golfers had about the PGA, you were like, wow, those make sense. Wow, you can't sell your own NFTs? That's ridiculous, right? Oh, you don't have the rights to this? You don't have the rights to that? Wow, that's crazy. Sounds like you boys need a union. Let me tell you what I am sure is wildly unpopular in any golf clubhouse, professional or anywhere else. Unions. Mm. Those are the guys that hate unions more than anybody sure. else. Prop up the week, all the other ret- all the other rhetoric that was basically anti-communist, <laughs> all that like all that stuff, right? <laughs> Those boys needed a union so bad. Right, right, right. But they would never do that. What does eating healthy mean to you? Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash Torrey. Thrivemarket.com slash Torrey. On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. So do you find, has the super team era in the NBA passed us? Or are we going to continue to see guys try to to join up to create a three-man super team? Well, to me, the era of the super team was always a bit greatly overstated, right? What LeBron and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh did with Pat Riley 
it's not just that they got together. It's that they tore the whole team down and said, we'll just work the rest out from there. They basically had an expansion team that only had Dwayne Wade, and then they got those two guys, and then they filled out the roster. But what isn't discussed nearly enough is that a team with LeBron James and Dwayne Wade, yeah, they won two championships, barely, right? I was there in 2013 when Ray Allen hit that shot that yeah, game. Yeah. The year before, I want to say they went game seven either in the second round or the third round. Like, they weren't head and shoulders above the league like the Warriors were head and shoulders above the league. Yeah. And the Warriors, granted, they got Kevin Durant, but even still, that 2015 championship was built by far more traditional means. What I think is happening in the NBA now that I don't think has been discussed enough is there's so many incredible players in the league that you better have a... You, you may not need to have two, two or three superstars, but your top four guys better be really, really good because everybody's got three really, really, really good dudes. That matters. The so Lakers have do a, it anymore. Say it again. You, you can't do it. Any, there's too, the talent is too diffuse yeah, and to, it's, to sign three big yeah. contracts and think you're going to get it done. Yeah, no, no. Because no. Think about this, man. The Lakers have LeBron James and Anthony Davis, and they might not make the playoffs. I don't care how much Anthony Davis is hurt. That simple fact that you have those two guys, and that used to be we are a championship contender. That is... Maybe you can get out of the play-in if everything breaks right with those two guys because it's so many good players in the NBA. Right. The the whole what the whole thing of Jay-Z in the NFL bothers me. <laughs> I feel like my man was used to mollify us and to get us to chill out and go home so that he could just like, great, now we're going to basically do nothing. So the background on this is interesting because I was talking to somebody who was informed on this matter when Rock Nation got the contract to do the Super Bowl halftime. And what had happened was, I think it was Rock Nation bought a company that had some arrangement with the NFL. Like it was something where one of those entities had bought this company and the Super Bowl halftime was tied up in that. Okay. And everybody was looking at each other like, well, we should probably look into this, right? And so they sent Jay-Z out there to that press conference of Roger Goodell, and I just can't believe that Jay-Z was not better prepared for what was coming because his we're past kneeling line is something that is going to stick with him forever. I, I thought that was the whole point mm -hmm. of the thing, to get him to say mm -hmm. we're past. Like, I feel like that was the talking point. Like, no, this I think is why we're giving you all the money. So you to say... Would pass kneeling. No, I that, think, that sentence. But I think he did it to himself. I think he didn't quite know exactly what to do. And the reason I say that is um, in our fourth episode of the season in Game Theory, we did a long essay about how the NFL might be a little more quote unquote woke than you think. The NFL gives. $2 million a year, I think, is the number. Something in that neighborhood to uh, salute to service. That's, okay. That's pennies to them. Okay. They give $25 million a year to social justice causes. It's also pennies to it's them. It's pennies. Though. But hear what I'm saying here. They give 12 times more to social justice. And I would argue give 12 times more exposure to the military stuff. Sure. Which is to say that if you're Jay-Z... And I can't remember the timing on all of this. 
But if you're Jay-Z or somebody else, like Rihanna, like this is my guess on how you get Rihanna to do the Super Bowl. And she's like, no, I'm not doing this because of Kaepernick, da-da-da. And they come to Rihanna, and they're like, well, let me show you all this stuff that we're doing here. And by the way, like, we talk about, like, bail funds, def- organizations that support defunding the police. see that? No, this, Jay, Jay calls it like, yo, yeah, no, but this ready? Is, but my point is simply this. The NFL can position itself as actually doing some work because they are doing some work and then get some people in if you want to. Now, maybe it's possible that Jay-Z was just like, hey, Riri, we need you to do this. I mean, the obvious guess it's is she got an album you. coming it's out. It's good for you to do this, Riri. Yeah, but she, you know, she probably got an album coming out. She probably got a tour coming out. The Kaepernick horse has left the barn. He ain't getting no job. It's not going to happen. No. It's a question as to whether or not you're fighting. But I think with Jay-Z, I don't think the NFL is – those people in charge of the NFL aren't nearly as smart as we think. Right. And I don't think they are as calculating as to be like, well, Jay-Z is going to smooth this over. They looked up and they said, our halftime see, show is whack see, and we need a better halftime show. But that's show. not complicated, right? We have a problem. Get Jay-Z. Yeah, but I think they're, I truly believe the problem the NFL was trying to fix was the halftime show. They don't care what black people think. Right? They care. I don't think they want that. They don't want that problem. Like, they, they want us to go away. Maybe. But we was going to go away because everybody eventually comes back to football. That's what I'm saying. I really think they just wanted a better halftime. Did show. you ever personally stop, think about not watching football because of Kaepernick? Um, it's hard for me to say because I don't have a job that affords that. If I had a different job, I probably would have given it some thought. Yeah. Because there are folks... Our friends, our peers mm-hmm. who are like, I don't fuck with football anymore. Mm-hmm. Yo, I got a Kaepernick jersey. I feel for dude. I can't not watch. Yeah, no, I mean, people, they, at this point, we ain't doing nothing. Like, that was the thing about it. What happens when you look up? Like, if you had the bus boycott and the buses didn't go out of business, people would have got back on the bus. <laughs> right? They're like, yo, man, I've been walking to work every day. I mean, it's the back, but damn. Like, like that, that is what people would have ultimately done if they felt like it was going to go in the long run. But people in this country really, 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 really like football. Yo, I love football. And, yeah, it ties me to memories of my father. We watched the Patriots all the time. I grew up in Boston. He was a Patriots fan when they sucked, mm-hmm. right? So he was a dedicated fan. I want to – I hate the kicking game. <laughs> right, the Devin Hester's aside, when you return a kick for a punt for a touchdown or a big game, that's very exciting. Outside of that, I'm like, oh, I want to eliminate all PATs. Just give them seven and give them the option to go for for eight if you want. But like, just I don't want the kicker to come up here and do a chip shot. I hate the notion that we're we're throwing, running, fighting for yards. And then the end's going to come down to the dork if he can make the kick, that's a kick why, from... And that's why I love it. Why do you love that? I love it's, it. Because it's, 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 it's a completely opposite skill from every... Like if LeBron and AD, you did all that shit. But now we're going to have the little towel boy yeah. see if he can balance well, the ball in his head well, for 90 well, seconds. It's not necessarily like, an opposite skill, right? Because a lot of those guys, especially the punters, were like actual football players and then punting was the thing that they could get through. Like punters are not small, right? Like there's a reason for that. The reason that I love it is I love the idea that number one, those dorks are the most irreplaceable guys on the team. They're the hardest. You, It's harder to find another one of those. It's as hard to go find another kicker as it is to find another quarterback, right? Because there, like, there's a scarcity in the number of people who can do that. Two, I love the irony of the fact 
that so many of these games can come down to all this pressure on the shoulders of the person least equipped <laughs> to handle it. Like when you really think about what but, it takes. But you to, want the P, you love the PAT? I mean, they they make cool. it like 99% yeah, I'm okay with chip that. shot? I'm okay with that. If that's what we got to do, it had to kick it's her around, that's fine. Wait, it's, like, oh, it's a waste of my time as a fan when they're going to make it. It's even worse than free throw. I mean, you don't want, you don't like when a basketball game devolves into a free throw contest. Yeah, but no game ever devolves into a field goal kicking contest. Well, it, it does in the sense of like, we, you know, we're tied or we're down one or two. We're just trying to get to the 36 so he can kick a 50-yard field goal. Because mm-hmm. he can't kick it from 55. Maybe he can, but he probably won't. Mm-hmm. But if we get him to, like, 50, he good. But you also can't deny, man, a big kick is suspenseful. Like, it, it, there, there are elements to it. And, um, you know, dorks need representation, too. It's almost like... It's almost like, you know, because almost all of the major skilled players are black, mm-hmm. right? But we can't leave the, we got to have the, you got to bring your little well, brother well, around. Well, we got to well, have the white well, guy well, somewhere. Well, there's that part. Like, that's how you know, like, that tells you how, like, institutional racism works. You're going to tell me that, you're going to tell me there ain't a single black person that is capable of doing this thing, right? <laughs> right there, there's only been, like, five black putters in my life. They like, can't none of us do this. No, nah, man, they're like, yo, save something for us, man. All those great soccer players. But yeah. Not, so, so. I think that the NIL situation has mostly been extremely positive for these college athletes, that they should be able to get money for doing their thing. When the school and the NCAA and the coach is profiting, they were the only ones who weren't. Is there any negative aspect that you're seeing? Oh, yeah. What it what, oh, what, was what, a couple of things. One, it allows the schools to get away with not having to cut the check. The greatest hustle the NCAA and his member schools pulled off is to fight this fight this so long. And fine, we'll let somebody else pay our players <laughs> while we get all the television money, right? There's that part. There's also recently a story about a kid named Jaden Rashada, um, who was a quarterback. I think he's from California. He had committed to go to Florida. And he had signed a $13 million NIL deal to go to Florida. And it fell through. And I'm, the folks at Florida, I think, looked up and were like, no, nah, this ain't worth the money. But they were like, yo, we ain't got it. And I don't think it's because they didn't have the money. It's like, we ain't got it. And now this dude was scrambling, trying to go find some place to play. Like, in the end, we are still dealing with children making these big money decisions and dealing with people with far more experience at doing this than they themselves have. There are going to be, by the end of this, some nightmare stories about guys getting conned, guys getting got, what's going to happen with somebody's check don't clear in the middle of the season, who's going to make you come in and pay for this, because the NCAA decided they didn't want any part of this, so there's no regulation to what's going on. And I, there are great potential negative consequences from that. The other thing that I think is worth noting is... I hope somebody's helping these kids take care of this money. Mm. And look, they're grown, right? And being grown, you have the right to make bad decisions. And I will fervently defend your right to make bad decisions. But, man, when I see these kids with these ridiculous chains at the Heisman Trophy ceremony (laughs) and everything else, I'm like, man, no matter how much money you get, these kids, they're going to blow it. 
Like, like that's how it works when you're 18, 19, 20 years old. However much money you give me, you give me $5, I can stretch it to the end of the month. You give me $5,000, i am going to spend it by the end of the month. Right, right, and that, right, right. That does worry me with a lot of them. Like, I would love to know more about the particulars of some of these deals and what the protections are and, you know, what you might be walking yourself into with some of these people that you were doing business with. So let's talk about ESPN, right? Mm-hmm. It's especially as a black person, it's very difficult to divorce sports and politics, right? Mm-hmm. And sports has been a, a a major platform for our political goals and aims to be pushed out there. But they don't really want to talk about sports. They certainly don't want to spend a lot of time talking about sports from a black perspective the way that you and I want mm-hmm. to see it and discuss it. So what do you what do you make of that what do you, you know how do you how, now you're a consumer of ESPN well I still work there I still, still do a podcast for okay me. so so wait, I mean like what what do, what do we make of this that the, the dominant sports media figure is kind of like we don't want to talk about politics can we just play the games and you and I are like there's much more than just the games going on yeah but if you ask the people who make decisions there they're like it's not about us it's about the viewer and they and they I mean I think that's a fair point. They don't want to see it. Yeah. Well, we I do. Yeah, that's you do. Yeah, I I hear you. I I can only tell you like what their argument is on it. Now, I I do say this. I don't want to say in defense of the company, but I do think that this is a fair point. Nobody's showing up for the politics. Now, they're showing up for the sports. And yeah, so in every conversation I've ever had with anybody at ESPN, as long as you're giving them the sports, you can give them the other stuff, right? So, like, I did a thing on my podcast this week. Granted, it's a podcast, but I did something on my podcast this week about what's going on in Memphis. I looked up my buddy David Dennis, uh, who works for Anscape. He was on SportsCenter talking about what was going on in Memphis on Friday night as it went. There are definitely stories for ESPN. That's not controversial for ESPN. Maybe not, but I guess my point is this. There are times and places where the larger Bristol operations, so you're talking about your sports centers and the likes, are going to go in that direction. If I want to go in that direction on my podcast, no one's, I've never gotten any trouble from anybody at ESPN ever for yeah, talking about politics. You, I've never, I've never, I've never, I've never, you, you got to let me finish these sentences. Sorry, that, sorry, that, sorry. That, go ahead, that, go that's go how go. it works. So I've never gotten any problems from them on doing those things, right? Where I think they have a position that makes me somewhat empathetic is, yeah, I can talk about this stuff. It's all fun and games until he talks about this. Who is he? The he could be anybody. There's no telling who's going to be the person that comes in here and says the thing that causes problems. Who's going to be the person who says the thing that is legitimately like insane and indefensible in all of this stuff. And so for them, they would rather than mitigate each individual case, we just not going to deal with any of it. And I think that's largely the way that they've chosen to go about dealing with it. Like 10 years ago, it was a completely different discussion. It was a bit more free-flowing in what you could talk about. A little bit more. Yeah, now, yeah, this, like, I mean, I, I joined on with them full-time in 2013. And so Skipper's ESPN went more in that direction, right? 2017 is really the inflection point. 2016, 2017 is really the inflection point. And that's where I'm getting called up to Bristol and we're having conversations about how to handle this and da-da-da. And it was interesting because the point they made at the time was 
If you want to talk about those things, talk about it on our platforms. Don't talk about it on Twitter where we're giving it away for free and we cannot control it. Then the nature of programming changed a bit where the shows are more sports specific. And so there's not nearly as much room for anybody on television to talk about those things. Um, so basically, you kind of need to have a podcast. But their, their belief is people come here for the sports, so give them the sports. Mm. I can't say I don't get it. I mean, there's days when, yeah, I want the highlights. Mm -hmm. And there's days when, how could you have not discussed X angle of what's going on here? Yeah, but the thing is, you got to be really good at it to do it right. And that's the point that I think gets lost very often is there's a skill to doing this. And the skill that people get to ESPN for is talking about sports. The desire to talk about those things is not necessarily the same thing as the aptitude. So I can talk about those things very well. But then that next person comes up and like, I'm good at talking about this too. And then they come up here talking, sounding like a dumbass at best or at worst, wildly problematic. Then what do we do? You know, and that's where I do look at them and say, if I were in charge, I might have to address some of their, those same concerns. But if they thought that the viewer wanted that stuff, they give it to them. I, I, I understand that they're agnostic in that they want to give the viewer what they want. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, I guess they run into a problem because they let you or me or Harry Edwards mm-hmm. speak our stuff. A lot of viewers would be like, amen. They let Will Kane get on and say his thing. We're going to be mad. Right. But we, so we can't represent the right wing side of things like mm-hmm. that's going to make life very difficult. Yeah. No, it's it's not. I blame the company far less than I blame a certain segment of consumer and the outside media, because this is what my issue is. And this is what I said about Kaepernick when it happened in 2016. If you're like, I'm not going to watch the NFL anymore. Yes, you are. <laughs> yes, you are. Well, the ratings are down. Well, the ratings go down every election year. Those people will go and keep watching and everything else. What happens is you get enough loud, angry white people. It don't matter who they are, where they came from, what they talking about. White people know that you're supposed to listen to loud white people, right? <laughs> they listen to black people when they think we're about to burn something down. Right. But the idea that this has made some black people mad ain't going to make nobody take pause. It can be a very, very small group of white people like these group, like the, the white people that look at ESPN are like there's not enough of a conservative perspective or whatever it is and write articles about that stuff. Go click on any one of those articles. Go look at the replies. It's all bots. Yeah. It's not real people. There aren't that many people over there that care about it. But my complaint for everybody in this space and what I said for a very long time um, when I would have conversations with John Skipper about this is, yo, if we just ignore these people, we'll be fine. Like, I promise you, they don't have an audience. They don't have, they don't have the backup that you think that they have. And I think over time, the company has figured that out and it is far less reactive to some of that pushback that you get from people. I ask everyone who comes on the show, what being black means to you and how it shows up in your work. And you've always been, I always felt like, you know, he's, he's repping for black people in his way, right, mm-hmm. on the shows. Um, but what, is it, what does it mean to you? That's always an interesting question because, like, in the end, it's a social construct, right? Like, we all understand that this is fiction, 
while yeah. also understanding that this is very, very, very real. Now, how it shows up in my work, I can say that very clearly. It shows up in my work in that being black does not allow you to segregate yourself in the ways that being white can allow you to segregate yourself. I'll give you an example. If you went to like Freaknik in 95, 96, 97, right? <laughs> you getting a little Atlanta's uh, big wild party. Oh yeah, you get but you were getting a little of every kind of black person. You were getting a black person from around the block. You were getting a black person from that was in college. You were getting this, you were getting that cuz it ain't enough of us to break out, right? When you say it's a black people event, every kind of black person is coming. But you go to the biker rally in Sturgis, it's going to be bikers. Right, okay. you go name any other weekend. You go to like spring break for white people. It's white college students that are going to be there. You go to a black people spring break. Some of those people are in college, but it's just going to be black people there. Whenever we get together, we all get together. And what that means is, if you're existing in a space like I am, I got to speak in a way where everybody in this room understands what I'm talking about. So people could come and, I mean, I think this is a greatly overstated notion, but like you can go find the articles, the smartest man in sports and all of this stuff, right? Being smart is only as valuable to the people in your space as it is useful to them. Me simply being smart is not going to make anybody like me, but me talking to people in a way that shares that knowledge with them and then lets them get in on the benefits of me being smart then they can rock with me. And so where my blackness shows up is in recognizing and appreciating the intelligence of all the people that are in that room. I don't do gatekeeping. I don't do jargon. Like jargon is gatekeeping, right? I don't do that. My work is always in a way that is like, I don't care what this dude went to school or anything else. There is this concept that probably seems really big, but when I bring this down to the level, that person is going to know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you are a black person like me who grew up, I guess upper middle class would be a fair way to put it, right? If you grow up like that, you got to learn how to talk to people who are not in that space too. Like I'm not a Jack and Jill kid. I didn't, I didn't get that space, right? My dad is a little bit too gangster for all that. Like I wasn't there. But when I go to that family reunion, I can talk to all those people the same way I can talk to the people on television. And I think that's a very important part of being black is you have to learn to deal with everybody under this artificial banner. Where white people, it don't work that way. Like you think about this. When you, when you go to college and you went to Emory, and I imagine that what I'm about to say will land with you. You went to Emory with some fairly highfalutin Afro-Americans whose people had this, that, and the third, right? But you also went to school with some people that somehow, some way, fucked around and made it work. Got this scholarship, got this, stack of loans, all of this, and they made that work. When I was at Carolina or even at Claremont or the other places that I went to school, uh, not Clark Atlanta, because obviously that was black as the ace of spades. But, I, you know, I'm at these other places. You ain't hear as much about those up-from-nothing stories, that were there like the 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 class situation for the white people at the schools that I was at had far less variance than there was among the black people that were at those schools right and so those white people that grow up bougie can just only know bougie people even them bougie black people that you know that don't really hang out with none of them other black people oh they know them though was there was there a bougie era of you Nah, not really. That you came from the upper middle class. Did, did, so, no. 
No, nah, did you go thi- to private school? No, it's two things. It's two levels. One is that I went to public school, which is a very big part. In Dallas, Houston, in Houston, right? But it's actually the town I went to school in. This is always a tricky thing. People are like, you're not from Houston. No, I grew up in Houston. The address says Houston, but my parents taught at Prairie View when I was growing up, and I went to school in the next town over, which is called Waller, which at the time had 1,500 people. So I'm one of those people who did the opposite of what most black people do, which is we used a fake address so that I could go to the worst school. <laughs> Why? Um, to the work? Why? Two things. One, the ease of like my parents needing to deal with a kid. Like we lived 25 miles away. So there was that part. But the other part was there were more black people there. And my father was very concerned about me being in an overwhelmingly white environment and how that would work out. The best decision anybody ever made for me. But what that meant was like I was the kid with money at my school, but nobody lived near me. So they didn't see my house. So they didn't even know that I was the kid with money. But the people that I grew up around and talking to, there was no, there was no bougie clique, at least not among black people, okay. at the school that I went to. And my father's political inclinations are not in line with okay. any form um, of elitism. Like my brother and sister, they grew up in Atlanta among the bourgeois blacks there. Wait, which one are you? Are you the oldest? I'm the youngest. You're the youngest? Yeah. Of three? Yes. Interesting. Yeah, so my brother and sister grew up around the bourgeois blacks of Atlanta. So you're the funniest one of the family. No, my brother wins that one. Really? Yeah, my brother. I'm not the funniest. I'm definitely not the best writer. I think everybody knows that at this point, that I'm not the best writer. Um, But, yeah, that's like, so my bougie phase, I never had that. Like, I'm bougie black people. I don't know what to do with them. It (laughs) makes me terribly uncomfortable around them because I can't relate at all. All because all the shit that they think makes them special means nothing, <laughs> nothing at all to me. And the people I grew up with were just but, nothing like them. But if you're a Clark, yes, the whole world is on, is on the AUC. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of black people at Spelman and Morehouse who come from some money and yeah. carry themselves with a yeah, lot and I of... Yeah, I ain't hang out with them. <laughs> well, one, they, I mean, they ain't go to school with us, so they weren't really coming over here to rock with us in no way. Well, you're physically... Yeah, we're, there's physical, there's physical proximity, all, but, like, but like, if you did, if you were a dude from Clark and you didn't know the dude from Morehouse before he got there, you're never going to really, like, kick really? with him. Yeah, like, and you'll meet some girls from Spelman, like, you know, that kind of thing comes up, but my crew really wound up, like, I found it was interesting that the parental backgrounds of my crew in college were very similar to mine. Like, I have older parents, my like the people I was really closest to while I was in college also had older parents, for example, like that kind of thing went together. But no, that it, it's not even like I'm saying this with a badge of pride. I ain't never been no drinking, but that's just not that was never the world that I wound up in. It's why I can be on TV. I was in Jack and Jill. That was my mother's aspirational. Yeah. Ness, yeah. My dad wasn't going for that. Look, my daddy never celebrated Valentine's Day with my mama because he said that was a white folks holiday. He <laughs> damn sure wasn't about to have us in no Jack and Jill. I've never heard that. Yo, that's the greatest con anybody's ever run ever. That he really, he really told her. He was like, "Yeah, white folks holiday. Don't do it." <laughs> that was that. I was like, "Man, I wish I thought of that." I mean, I know that. Um, for me, part of being black, you know that you stand on the shoulders of the folks who came before you. Mm-hmm. And think I think very actively about Max Robinson and Carol Simpson, people who are doing the news. And like, you know, I wouldn't be here if not for them and, and many, many others. Are there folks that you look at that are like, I'm standing on this person's shoulder and that like like specific inspirations that oh, you're yeah. like, let me try to honor 
what that person yeah. did in my, with with what I do. I got into sports writing because Ralph Wiley got me into sports writing. Wow. I am a direct wow. connection. And there's a zillion people who have similar stories, so I'm not the most special in the world from this, but I am in direct line with that guy. And I feel like if you look at the range of work I've done and the things that I'm trying to do and things that I've tried to do, that the baddest one that they made is that dude right there. And that's Great. the one. Like when you – the dude quit his job at Sports Illustrated so he could be Rocket Ishmael's agent. <laughs> How cold do you have to be to A, write for Sports Illustrated in 1982, yes. and B, in 1991, look up and be like, nah, I'm going to go do this other thing. Like, you go look at the whole run of things that Ralph did truly between 1991 and he died in 2004. Mm. The range of those things, writing a book with Johnny Cochran, writing uh, Why Black People Tend to Shout, coming back and doing the stuff for page two on ESPN, all of those things. Like, that's... That's the dude that wasn't scared of shit, man. He was up there telling them whatever it was to tell them at any given point. Made them love it, too. Last thing. Um, I loved Ralph. He was an amazing person. Um, what's your superpower? I ask everybody this. What is the thing that you do better than other people that has led to your success? That you can ask me about just about anything, and if you needed me to give you 90 seconds about it, that sounded fully thought out and researched. I might need five seconds to gather, but I could go ahead and do it. Anything? Just about anything, yeah. Not just sports, economics, blackness, a anything. I mean, people forget, man. I've been writing about music for almost 25 years now, you know? Like, I, I don't do it as much as I used to, um, but, that, but that's my thing is I can give it to you quick, I can give it to you pretty thoroughly. I can give it to you quickly, and I can land the plane. Like, that's the, those, like around the horn. That's the thing they, they always liked about me on around the horn is you could get in my ear at any point and say rap, and I will land the plane right there. And you <laughs> will have you, had whatever it is that you need. you got to be able to. So last thing, last thing, who's your top five MCs? Oh, boy. I haven't thought about this in a while. I know, and it so changes, it changes. I, well, I always wind up feeling old. Know, because the list hasn't changed that much in the last 15 or 20 years. Oh, yeah. Um, I am still of the KRS one is the greatest MC of all time. Wow, I love Chris, there. but wow, he's number one. Well, the reason is he is the best live performer that rap music has ever performed. Like okay. when you like when you think about, I went to the Roots Jam session a few years ago for the Grammys, and they brought Chuck D out, and Chuck D is on stage with Black Thought, and Black Thought is Black Thought, right? I don't need to explain this. Yeah. But you wasn't going to tell me anybody was better at rapping than Chuck D from hearing Chuck D up there. And he can't do all the tricks. He ain't got all the bells and whistles that Black Thought has. But once once you hear Chuck, it is, oh, your back straightens up, right? Yeah. Like, all kinds of guys now got all these different tricks or whatever. But KRS-One, KRS-One is dope in rap, very similar in the way that Chuck Berry is dope in rock in that the biggest thing about Chuck Berry is the clarity of his voice and the fact that you can understand every single word he says every time. And That's, you understand every word that Chris says that is very at important every time. Mm -hmm. And it's it, as a listener, it is way more important than anybody is really thinking about and giving credit to. So, all right, I got KRS-One in there. I think you have to have Rakim in there, where if I'm making still making sure. these comparisons, sure. Rakim is Sam Cooke in the sense that you look up, and if you don't think about it, but you don't realize, oh, everybody's trying to sound like him. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that something, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Rakim gets on that on that list. I have actually volleyed. Cook, I would say almost James Brown in that he is the font from which everybody after him comes. Yes, well, the, the reason I say specifically with Sam Cook, because see, the thing with James is, and it's hard to find anybody in rap that's replicated this, to be the guy that takes us 
into soul and then takes us from soul to funk and then funk takes us to hip hop to be the node that inspires these distinct musical movements across James James like James Brown and Louis Armstrong are the two 20th century musicians everybody else is coming in after that nobody matters more well than Miles Davis I mean somebody's got to be third <laughs> Miles Davis can't be third dog he's not it, Miles Davis changed music multiple times he did but not he changed music multiple times but not in the way that James changed music multiple times Miles Davis changed music multiple times in a way that for people who are not really into jazz, you're going to have to stop and explain to them what it was that happened. Okay. James Brown changed music multiple times in ways that the random person on the street yes, yes, knows, yes. you know, knows what it is and made it gangster. Like he, he made popular music gangster in a way that it had not been up until the, the, the whole James Brown thing is just the like thing. the yeah. craziness. Um, everything, who else am I throwing in there on that? I think I probably still have Chuck in my top five. You're, I'm sorry, son. Your list is mad old. It is mad old. But who are these people that have come after that are better? Like, I don't know. Jay-Z is way up there. Is Jay-Z in my top five? The problem with the top fives is I only got five. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what I always say about college football. There's 25 fans of 25 schools that think they should be in the top 15 <laughs> every year. But, I mean, while that list is old, who got two albums better than Nation and Fear of a Black Planet? I mean, well... See, we're talking about MCs, yeah. right? Now you're giving Chuck credit for like all the stuff, and all he was rapping his ass off. Well, was he? Yes, compared to Nas, under three thousand, yes. Black yes. Thought. No, no, okay. Chuck see, is not flowing see. in the way that an elite modern, and, and I mean like the Rock Him era. Like mm-hmm. that, like that, like he never batter than bad because a brother is madder than mad at the fact that's corrupt like a sinner. The soul on a roll, but you treat it like soap on a rope because the beats and the lines are so dope. You telling me that that ain't flowing in a modern fashion? Nah, he's not really in the pocket the way that Rakim, Kendrick, 3K, Jay Z, Nas, yeah. that top level. Yeah, I'm looking at Kendrick like. You made, five, I believe it's five mm-hmm. incredible albums. Yeah. No duds. No duds. You are an no incredible duds. writer, an incredible flower. You, I mean, like you do everything. Yeah, yeah. The voice sounds great. I hear you. Like, how are you not? Like, how are you not in I the know, top but, five? But, but, but I mean, but dog, I can't be talking to you about Chuck D, man. <laughs> what you, What's the first line of your review of music in our message? I mean, what's the know, first line of your review of music in our message? Look, look, look. What's the first line? <laughs> just, just tell the people what's the first line of your review of music in our message. Uh, I believe it was something like, "I'm used. We should be used to." Seeing Black Heroes Die in Public. Yes, yes. That is what I say. For an album that I That's guarantee right. you, if you go back and listen to, is much better than you get. Oh, no. Oh, God, no. Oh, God. Oh, no, no. Oh, no. You know what? Since I'm here, we can do this, which is <laughs> what I have long believed, not saying that you were a part of this per se, but the vast industry conspiracy to shut Public Enemy oh, down God, in 1994. No. You go back and you look at how negative. There was no, there was no conspiracy. No, no, no. I, I say, I mean, I'm being somewhat facetious, right? Okay. But if you go back. And read, I think it was Gotti Bonanno who wrote the review and the source at the time of music in our message. Everything that everybody wrote about that album, which happened to be a highly critical album of the direction of rap and gangster rap and what everything was. Basically, it was in many ways a precursor to De La Soul's Stakes is High, which was the perfect breakdown of everything that happened before and everything that happened after. It was all so unnecessarily mean and so vindictive at somebody who dared say, hey, man, maybe all this stuff about us killing each other might not be the best idea for us to have. See, I think the point of that review that I would stand on, the message was great. Mm -hmm. He's brilliant. So whatever whatever message he's going to set out to say, but... 
his standing stood on his aesthetics. We could just right. play uh, uh, those records from the, f- the second and third album and the fourth album at a party yeah. and rock out. Right, yeah. we're not, I'm not even dealing with with the meaning of nine one one as a right. joke. I'm dancing because this record right. is dope. But when you lose that, well, what happened? I mean, we both know what happened there. The laws changed, and the bomb squad couldn't make bomb squad beats anymore. Now, yeah. of course, the end result is the end result, right? You could call that an excuse very easily. But no, for me with Chuck though, Chuck is still such a soaring, towering figure. Like the problem is, we need to expand these to top ten lists instead of top five. Because, like, Andre, Andre's way, like, Andre and Big Boy. Outcast is my number one. Like, hey, they will start getting into, like, groups and stuff. Okay, now we talk about something different. Andre and Big Boy are my, they're my favorite. Or like, after Prince, they are my favorite everything. Well, I'm not mad at you. Outcast is incredible. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important in hip-hop to say a duo versus a group, right? Like, a group, three or more, is different. That's fair. So, is Outcast the greatest duo of time? Yes. Probably. Yes. Probably. Sure. No, probably. no, I ain't no problem. Probably. To me, that's an unequivocal Yes. I mean, I think you can absolutely make that case in terms of the complexity, the depth well, that they were doing. Like, who else will we throw in there? Duos on the level of Outcasts. Who else will we throw in there? I have to think about it. Like, if we're talking about the quality of the output, not just the ability to the, rap. The, like, EPMD. If we just talk about, because EPMD raps like producers. And I don't mean that as an insult. No, no, no. Like yeah, Q-Tip yeah. raps like a producer, which is yeah. somebody who raps as an instrument for the see, beat that they have in their minds. See, a tribe called Quest is complicates it right, right? well public enemy complicates it well they well i mean it, they do complicate for the, it but for the same reason like yeah. it's what it, like who are the two how are we delineating who does what there's a dj yeah right the dj producer never raps so then right because i'm like dale soul is a group because mace raps yes. and i'm to me that's the greatest group of all time ahead of even wu-tang right for me dale mm-hmm. soul I mean, you know, I'm, I'm, I, it's hard to come up with an with somebody who competes with Outkast because they're, I mean, of course yeah. they're amazing. Yeah, but no, I need, I need, we need to expand it so people do this to top ten. Because really, I, I, I decided a top five in like '98, and I didn't really adjust where it was. So like, Biggie Smalls. I mean, so much of Jay Z's career is after that, right? And like Biggie Smalls, for example, who has a very Jimi Hendrix arc, except sure. for the fact that we can't go dig up all the Biggie tracks, like, we can go dig up all the Hendrix tracks. Sure. But it's an incredible three years. Sure. You know, like, he he winds up being in that space. Tupac, where if you're talking about how well he rapped, you missed the point, right? Like, it's just all about where he hits people right oh, here. Yes, but he's a musician. So if it's not a great no, no, rapper, then what no, are we talking because, no, about? No, 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 no. I didn't say he's not a great rapper. I said you getting too caught up in the idea of how good it is at how he raps. Number one, he was great at riding beats. But the biggest thing was Tupac was the first rapper to use consistently use emotion as a rhetorical device in his rhymes. Yes. Nobody, I mean, here's the thing about it, man. There's a reason why these dudes will fight you for saying something bad about Tupac, and it cannot be discounted. It's because he hit people like, look, man, I had it too good. My life wasn't bad enough to really relate to Tupac. But the people that did, you can't never tell them anybody was better. He hits you emotionally in a deep way, but I promise you, if I could erase from your mind, from the collective memory, all the shit that he did away from the studio— and just here's here's a CD. All you know about this person is what's on this record. You ain't gonna say this is one of the great MCs of all time. I think, I still think you would. When I put up, oh here's Andre 3000. Here's Kendrick Lamar. Here's Nas. Here's Jay Z. Here's KRS. Here's Rakim. Here's here's here's. You'd be like, 
Well, Pac is cool cube. Yeah, and on I could, and on, right? And Snoop, I, and I could probably find a classical pianist who's way better than Little Richard ever was. Right? It's about what it make you feel. Like in the end, it but, all comes. But but Riddle Richard, when he sings, I feel it. But that's, but that's what I'm saying, and, and that's how they feel about Tupac. I think it's in the uh, Pompeii documentary, Pink Floyd. Dear Roger Waters says in the finished article, the only thing that matters is whether or not it moves you. And Tupac moved people, moved them, moved them. Kendrick does not move me. Um, and I think he's very, very good. I think he does too much at times, but I think he's very, very good. Like the example I give, I'm going to say something that I know is controversial to whoever's listening to this. Uh-oh. I am a brown sugar greater than voodoo person till the end what of time. What are you talking about? And for, this, and, for this, and for the same reason, I am a good kid greater than to pimp a butterfly oh person. my god oh, it's, oh it's now for we're just... the same reason man i found the ladder from both of them to just be a little bit overwrought with voodoo i'm like speak up i can't understand what, what? you're saying brown sugar is so good it's so perfect in every single way i, I just think it's a better record to pimp a butterfly i think it's too complex. dense I, th- I know but see com- complexity is not intrinsically valuable simplicity is intrinsically valuable complexity is not and that's where the line comes for me Mm. complexity Mm. is valuable as it serves the ultimate purpose but if i get into it i'm just like oh my god this is so deep now i ain't got no time for that like you are a big prince guy the same way that i am a big prince guy prince is in line with complexity is an overrated concept okay but what's your greatest prince album greatest prince album yeah because he can only be compared to himself the greatest Prince album, I, I've gone around in corners with this, and I used to be Sign of the Times is the best Prince album. Mm-hmm. And then I realized we're all just trying to be too cute. This dude made a sexy, hard rock gospel album that was so good that a terrible movie seemed good because it was the soundtrack. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to <laughs> Yeah, Siri did respond not respond either. She didn't know how to respond to that either. But the answer is Purple Rain. Like, I've, I've gone all around on this so much, and then I just stopped, and one day you look up, and you're just like, nope, nope, nope. This is this is the one. I mean, you see, I would, I don't have a definitive answer on this, but I would still go back to Sign of the Times. And I think we are just looking at the world differently. That I'm like, when the artist gets to the 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 zenith of their vision and mm-hmm. their ability, I have more money, I have more time, I have more thoughts. And here I'm going to do to pimp a butterfly to do. Um, Get the first one you talk about. You probably like Ready to Die better than Life After Death. It's not even close. Oh my God, I can't. Life of, I don't Life wanna, After I, Death. I don't want to do this because New Yorkers want to fight me when I talk about Life After Death. But um, so if, hold on, hold on, hold on. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a device that you hit me with. If I separated the fact that he died from wow. the album, wow. I don't. I I completely disagree. I love that record. Uh, apart from. What happened to him? Well, I'll say this. He and I would, but Pac, I wasn't talking about his death. No, no, I was saying this about Biggie. He is a much better rapper on Life After Death than he is on Ready to Die. Okay. Ready to Die is a better record, though. No. No. Ready to Die is a better record. I, like, I, I feel it in a different but I way. See, but I, I see you You are consistent within your worldview, and I appreciate it's, it. It's, it's about this right here. So, like, with Prince, this is actually fun. I like to, re- like, I refer to the golden era Prince records, which for me is Dirty Mind through... Uh, I'll carry it to Love Sexy, which I think is actually a wildly underrated record. Sure, sure, sure. 
each of them stands out to me for a much like it's a, I call I can call them all basically a blank record, right? So for me, Dirty Mind quietly is for me it's the bass record. The bass is all so slinky and sexy on every track, and when you listen to it, is when you realize he plays bass like a piano player, like a guitar player, like a person with thin hands. So you don't hear just like the thunderous bass. It's all, boop, 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 boop. you know, it's all real slick, and it goes. 1999, obviously, that's the drums album, right? Sure, sure, that is the I've got sure. this drum machine. Watch what I do, and when I don't do this thing with the drum machine, I'm gonna do Little Red Corvette, which is probably my best written song. Not necessarily my best record, but probably my best written song. I've heard that I heard that man do that live acoustic. I've heard him do it so many different ways, and you realize it can just be made into so many different what things. Say Little Red Corvette is the best written. It's the song. best. It's it, it is the best piece of song, like a pop songwriting that he had is Little Red Corvette. Okay. It's Little Red Corvette. Purple Rain. I mean, honestly, it's just Purple Rain. Well, like, that's well, that's the guitar album. Yes, that, that, that's exactly what it is. And that's, it gets, that's what you were and, building yeah, and on. And it gets but... slept on on the fact that basically. If there's a guitar on it, he shows out on just about every single track, even a track like The Beautiful Ones, where it's not the soaring solo that you get on Let's Go Crazy. It's still a guitar record. Around the World in a Day, that's the Beatles record, right? Like, it's just like, hey, we're playing around with Beatles stuff. Like, we're just going to try some, you know, some new stuff. Parade is always tricky for me because, to me, that's the should have worked on it a little bit longer record. (sighs) No, no. It just doesn't. And it's so beautiful. But the sound sound quality is so messy, and it's just, and I hate someday it snows. Sometimes it snows in April. Oh. Hate it. You need therapy. That is like. No, no. People who need therapy love it. No. (laughs) Everybody needs therapy. That is so beautiful Mm -hmm. and deep. Yeah. God, I love that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just like, yo, this is weird. Get this oh, out. To, get I, this I, out. I, I, I want to cry. I'd rather the ten. He don't minute. make me want to cry that often. Mm-hmm. He doesn't usually go yeah. to that thing. Mm-hmm. There, where I'm like, okay, just one Kleenex. I, okay, no, nah, just give me the other seven minutes of another love of holding your head to finish out that record. <laughs> the, actually, my favorite thing about that terrible movie is it's time for a chase scene, and the song is another love of holding your head. Like the magic moment in that. I gave you love. I gave, now these cats are running off the docks and all this. God, what a terrible movie. Um, it's terrible. Yeah, side of the times is just the it's the show off album. Yeah, watch me do everything. But it's the horns album. Yes. continuing the right. The, what you after all that yeah. time of I don't put any instrument on here that I can't play, and right. then finally it's like okay we'll we'll get some horns and it has if I was your girlfriend. Now I want to make a distinction to help you understand what I'm saying about Little Red Corvette. Little Red Corvette I think is like the best written song he had in terms of like. I could do so much. If you give me these words, I could arrange it in a million different ways and okay. turn it into a million different things. And it has the, you know, like I think uh, Eric Arnold, who I haven't talked to in like 20 years, journalist out of the Bay Area, made the point to me once in an email. And he's like, it's I want to hold your hand for freaks. Like, that's what Little Red Corvette is. However, in terms of, oh, my God, how did you write that if I was your girlfriend is the pinnacle. Sure. I Con- mean, is the conceptual pinnacle. Like that album does have, like, there, that's the songwriting album. A door is, that's what I say. It has right a door. There. Say, dude, but so is Dorothy Parker. A door. But say that album has side of the times, Dorothy Parker, it kind of slept on starfish and coffee, a door. Um, side what did I just say? If I was your, yeah. So I say, if I was your girlfriend, uh, forever in your life, forever in, in my life, forever in my life, forgive me. Uh, Strange Relationship, which is one that has a lot of really fun arrangements everywhere. I can never take the place of your man. Oh, my God. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's another one that, you know, in the re-releases they've done up a zillion times. But that is the songwriting album. 
he just writes every song to death, just shows off at every turn. And then Love Sexy, which I love just because that weirdo decision he made, it's all one track. Yeah. It doesn't work unless it's all one track. Right. Like hopping in and out of songs on that record. There's only there, there's only two songs on there that I'm just like, okay, I can just jump in and just still be satisfied. Yeah. And they happen to be back to back. When two are in love and the love chronically that. underrated I wish you haven't. Such an honor to do that interview. Thank you for listening. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and maybe this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show. Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jennifer Brown. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington and Nick Carp. Our booker is Claudia Jean, and we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back next week with more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down.